So many years ago when I was in Bible college, I went up to the office of the professor who was in charge of the pastoral department. I wasn't in trouble or anything. Uh, I forget exactly why I even was up there. Um, but as I passed his door, he had this huge poster of the super pastor and all of the qualifications that made up the super pastor. Now, I don't remember exactly what that poster said, but I've searched the internet a little bit and I found some that come very close. And it begins with things like this. The super pastor works from 8 a.m. until midnight. He has a photographic memory of every verse in the Bible. He prepares sermons in a few hours, is an articulate preacher of the scriptures with memorable illustrations. He preaches exactly 12 minutes, but says enough that you could fill a whole hour of discussion. He frequently condemns sin, but upsets no one. By the way, he's also a copy machine tech, a psychologist, a serious man who tells good jokes, and oh yes, he is also a janitor. He makes $60 a week, wears good clothes, buys good books, drives a good car, and gives $80 a week to the poor. He's 28 years of age and has been preaching for 35 years. He's wonderfully gentle and good-looking. He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and is always found with seniors. He makes 15 daily calls to church families, visits shut-ins and the hospitalized, evangelizes the unchurched, and is always in his office when needed. Well, I would have to say that when you first enter into ministry as a pastor, there is certainly some intimidation there, some trepidation, but you're naive. You're thinking, I remember when I became an elder many, many years ago, not even talking about a pastor, and I thought, this is going to be so great. All I have to do is go around shaking hands and encouraging everyone in the Lord. This is going to be great. Well, within about two months, there was a church split. I, I didn't cause it, okay? I just want you to know. Uh, there was a church split, and that's when I really grew up as an elder of a church. I think the intimidation of being a pastor comes after his first year. It comes when the expectations of people start coming to him. And many times, those expectations are sometimes opposed to each other. And you just can't seem to make anybody happy. I bring this up because this is where we are talking about Timothy. Now, Timothy now is the pastor there at the church of Ephesus. Paul was his mentor and gave him a good grounding. But there was more mentorship to be done, and it was done through this epistle of First Timothy. And we're going to talk about all that it is, but one of the things was how to conduct yourselves in the church of God. And this is the point where I think that maybe Timothy is at that point, of, yeah, I know what to do, and I, I know the principles of it, but all these other things we didn't learn in Bible college, we never had that. And so this letter timely comes. I found another little illustration that sums it up this way. If you want something a little bit more biblical, 
of the ideal pastor. First of all, he has the strength of Samson. He has the wisdom of Solomon. He has the courage of David. He has the patience of Job. He has the skill of Luke. He has the endurance of Moses. And last but not least, he has the agility of Zacchaeus. Well, we're still in the introductory section of 1 Timothy. We usually spend about two weeks uh, talking about that, and I feel like it's so important. If you're going to interpret the book correctly, you have to know the background of the book. You have to know who wrote it, what it was written for, what are the purposes, and even the main theological issues. And so that's what we're going to take a look at. Last week, we looked at that it is a pastoral epistle. There are three letters that Paul wrote in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, young pastors with this. Now, it's not a pastor's manual, but it is very good help for teaching doctrine, guarding against false teaching, and how to administrate in the church as well as deal with people. We talked about Timothy's background, that Timothy's background was that his mother was a Jewish believer and grandmother, but his father was a Greek, and from all understanding of the context, he was not a believer. And we find Timothy raised in this setting. As far as Timothy's ministry go, you remember last week there was a number of things that we believe first and foremost, Timothy was led to the Lord by Paul on Paul's first mission trip. In fact, probably Timothy's mother and grandmother were converted at that time. And there's many references in the Bible, both first and second Timothy begins this way, to Timothy, my beloved son, or my beloved son in the faith. That is, seems like an indication that he led Timothy to Christ. And there is a really a wonderful relationship that Timothy and Paul have. And Paul asks him to go along on his ministry. And he does. And it seems as if he wanted to go along with it in the beginning. Uh, in the beginning, and he stayed with him till the very end. In fact, he did. He stayed with Paul and Paul's ministry, Paul's entire life. And I do believe that Timothy continued in ministry afterwards. Now, one of the other things that we see, what did Timothy do? And this is what we discussed last week, and I just want to review this. And this is where Timothy became one of my heroes. I have a number of heroes from the Bible. Timothy was added. So we know that when Timothy first started, he aided Paul. Uh, when, when they came and visited Paul, after being at another town and another church, and they came, it said that Paul now, because they came, was able to give himself to ministry, meaning that they would take care of the other things. And then we find out, we see even a growth in Timothy. First Thessalonians talks to us about Timothy was sent to them to strengthen them and find out if they're okay. So in other words, Paul went to Thessalonica, preached the gospel, many came to Christ, he was yousted out of town because of persecution. And lo and behold, Paul sent Timothy to go. Now, I shared last week that we know of Timothy. And in 2 Timothy, it talks about his timidity. We know 
know exactly how that applies, but I can tell you one area where it doesn't apply, and that he was not afraid of persecution. He did not leave when there was persecution. He went back to the church that persecuted Paul, and he made sure that they were doing okay and strengthened them and encouraged them. We find out in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul writes about him. So what we did last week was we took the book of Acts and we chronologically stuck in the letters to figure out Timothy's chron chronological mission with Paul. And 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says this, For the Son of God, Christ Jesus, who was preached among you by us, by me, and Silvanus, and Timothy. So whether he had trouble speaking or timid in front of people, he was out preaching now. He was preaching. He was part of the preaching ministry. We find out also that he taught churches. So not only did he preach, but then he would, he would teach them. I think we would think of like Bible studies, regular Bible studies he would have with them. It says this in 1 Corinthians, For this reason I have sent to you Timothy. Well, Paul is now in the habit of sending Timothy many times to troubled churches or to see the churches are okay. He said, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord? And he will remind you of my ways, which are in Christ Jesus, just as I teach everywhere in every church. So he'd been mentored, he'd been discipled, he'd been trained, and now he's going out and doing those very things. While the Apostle Paul was imprisoned in Rome, and of course that was under house arrest, so there was a, a bit of freedom there, um, we see that Timothy was with him the majority of that time. Paul writes four letters. They're called prison epistles. And in three of them, Timothy is mentioned. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. So we see that he was with him during this time and, of course, probably aiding him and probably preaching and also teaching. And then we find out in a verse mentioned in Hebrews chapter 13 that Timothy himself was in prison. And it seems logical to put this after the death of Paul. I'm not 100% sure. But in Hebrews 13, 23, it says, Take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes soon, I will see you. So this is the ministry background of Timothy. So at this point, he's been sent to Ephesus as a pastor. He preaches, he teaches, he's been alongside of Paul for numerous years. The whole ministry, I believe, took some 20 years that he was with Paul all the time. And, and here we find out now he's going to be the pastor of Ephesus. Now, quickly, we know Ephesus in the book to, to the Ephesian church, do we not? We spent quite a bit of time in the book of Ephesians. And it's a very, very mature letter. We saw that they were a mature church. It talked about the position in Christ. Yes, we have a condition, the way we have to live our lives, but it's based upon who we are in Christ, the blessings that we've been given in Christ. And yet, Timothy is sent there not because they were so mature, but because there were still some problems. 
And some have entitled 1 Timothy as 2 Ephesians. Well, with that review, let's go to the Lord in prayer and we'll begin to talk about the authorship, the occasion for writing, theological and practical matters, key verses, and the outline. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you now, Lord, we come to this very sacred part of worship where your word is brought forth. How we pray, Father, that it's the Holy Spirit who is the teacher, and it's the Holy Spirit who helps us to listen and to learn and to apply. We may have come here this morning through trials. We may have come here this morning with discouragement. We may have come here in all sorts of ways as tired. But Lord, would you strengthen the inner man? Would you open our mind and our heart to the spiritual truths, even in the introduction of this young pastor who receives instruction? And it's instruction that not only for Timothy or pastors, but all of us. And we'll thank you for this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I do want to begin and talk about authorship. And in one sense, we're all here and we all believe that Paul wrote this and we pretty well have it down who wrote the books of the Bible. But there always are dissenters. There always are those who, if they can show that there's some kind of problem, that there's a lie in the Bible, that someone who said they wrote it, really didn't write it, uh, or show some kind of opposition or, or even a contradiction, then they dismiss the whole Bible, and they don't have to submit their lives to God. So I am going to spend just a little bit of time talking about this to show you that it's generally accepted that Paul wrote First and Second Timothy, but it's not universally accepted, which is sad. And some of the arguments are this. Let me go through the arguments and then we'll work through them quickly. First of all, they argue that not everything in 1 Timothy is harmonized with the book of Acts and also with Paul's imprisonment in Rome. So there's contradictions there. Secondly, when they talk about false teachers, it appears that they're talking about Gnosticism, full-blown Gnosticism, second century Gnosticism. Thirdly, they have a difficulty with thinking that Paul could write such developed church organization with the leadership and the qualities of elders and deacons. Church doesn't seem to be going that fast. Also, this there is doctrine that is taught in the book of 1 Timothy, but not as detailed doctrine and theology as in other epistles, whether it be like Colossians or whether it be other letters. And then finally, you know what? This really doesn't sound like Paul in his language and in his Greek. This is a different style than Paul writes in other letters. Well, let me just go through them quickly. First of all, the fact that they say it's not harmonized. 1 Timothy isn't harmonized with Acts and Romans. One of the biggest problems is, as they say, 2 Timothy says he's written, he's writing in chains, and so he's in prison. But 1 Timothy, it says that he was in Macedonia and sent Timothy. 
Well, why wasn't Paul in prison? This just doesn't sound right. You go to the book of Acts. Last chapter of the the book of Acts talks about Paul in prison under arrest. Well, this is really not a problem, and I, I, I feel that they're not paying attention. They're not paying attention. The book of Acts ends not at the end of Paul's life. It ends at the end of his first imprisonment. And in Acts chapter 28, verses 30 and 31, it says, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters. By the way, two full years, meaning what happened after two years? And he was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Nothing about his release, nothing about his death, his beheading under Nero. So should we throw everything out? No, we have to realize that for one reason or another, God decided that the book of Ephesians would end there. And I love it because I always say, when you go to chapter 28, what happened next? You happened next. Christianity kept going and Jesus Christ was building his church and it has reached us today. We, beloved, are finishing the book of Acts, so to speak. And so um, I have no problem with that at all. Now, what about this advanced Gnosticism of the second century? And we've done a study on Gnosticism when we went through the book of Colossians. And I'm telling you, it is bizarre. It is bizarre. Basically, everything we believe, they would believe the opposite. We believe that Yahweh is the God of this world. They would believe that Yahweh is the evil God of this world. Anyway, I'm not going to get into that, but it says Gnosticism really came to fruition in the second century. But this isn't full-blown Gnosticism. We see elements of it. Number one, the false teachers that Timothy has to deal with, that we'll see, they're still in the church. When Gnosticism becomes full-blown, they don't want anything to do with Christianity, and they are completely separate. Also, we see here that some of these false teachers are talking about legalistic Judaism, Judaizers, which has always been a problem that we see in the New Testament, Judaizers. Well, there are no Judaizers in Gnosticism. So we see that that's not really a good assessment. Now, what about the fact that it seems to be that we have a fully developed church organization here, church leadership? Sorry that Paul is so good at administration, so early. And and that would have been his job. But one of the things is it's not just the book of Timothy that tells us. We see this throughout. How about Philippians 1.1, which I read there moments ago, in which Timothy was with Paul, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Overseers and deacons have been established in every church. And by the way, it was the book of Acts that told us that. When they had appointed elders, Acts 14, 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Evidently, they didn't realize how, in some instances, the church was moving ahead quite quickly. 
Now, what about the brief theology? And I will admit um, that it is not as detailed as we might see in other letters. But here's what John MacArthur said. Since Timothy was well-versed in Paul's theology, yes, he was, the apostle had no need to give him extensive doctrinal instruction. But I want to point out, there is doctrine. There's a lot of doctrine in 1 Timothy. He talks about salvation. He talks about the attributes of God. He talks about the fall of man. He talks about the person of Christ. He talks about election. And he talks about the second coming of Christ. I would love for all Christians to be well-versed in those things and talk about those things quite often. Paul mentioned those in his letter, even though it doesn't go into the great detail and eloquence that we know that Paul can do. And the last one is a, I think, a very weak argument, and we see it in other places too, but they said this is a different style. This isn't Paul's style. Well, you know as well as I do, all writing, whether from an apostle or anyone else, differs in style and vocabulary. It all depends to whom they are writing. Um, it, it's, uh, there's a difference between personal letters and theological teachings. So if you're talking to a friend and you've had a number of theological discussions, you, you may not even talk about the whole theological issue. You may talk about one point that's recently come to both of your attention. Or you may just even talk about personal things and not even talk about theological. It might be biblical, what you talk about, but it's personal. Or you might have a church full of hunters and we talk about the deep theology that's found in hunting. See, see the way I talked? That didn't use any big Greek words and you got it. There is a way that's different when, you're, when you know someone and you speak personally to them. So uh, I think hands down, Paul wrote this, and it makes sense why Paul would write it, being his mentor, being Timothy's mentor. And now that he's set him to be the pastor, he's wanting to encourage him. Well, this leads us to the next thing that you want to always ask. Why was this book written? And all books in the Bible have a purpose. Many times the purpose is found in the letter. For instance, the Gospel of John at the very end says, these things were written that you might know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Why was the Gospel of John written? Boom, there it is. That was the purpose. Why was 1 Timothy written? Well, the first one is, and, and it could be boiled down to about five, and you, you may even see some more, or you may boil it down to less than five, but the first one is this. Paul was delayed. That's what the verses say that Doug read this morning. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy 3, chapter 14. And he's giving us one of the reasons why he's writing. He says, I am writing these things. Big clue. 
to you, hoping to come to you before long. Now, we don't know if there was a schedule, and knowing Paul, there was. There was a schedule saying, hey, I'm going to try to get to you at at such and such a time, but I want to send you, I want to send you to Ephesus to be the pastor. And so here's Timothy in this church now, new pastorate, and there's some problems going on. And he's supposed to deal with them. Where's Paul when you need him? Paul said, I'm hoping to come to you. I possibly have been delayed. Many times he, he had a plan, but God had a different plan. And then he writes this, another, another reason, verse 15, about the church conduct, how you should administrate in the church, how you should lead a church, how you should be the pastor of a church, how the people who are believers in the church should act and conduct themselves. He says this, but in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now, first of all, when it says how you ought to conduct yourself, doesn't mean, well, you know, you can go to the bookstore, the Christian bookstore, and you can see other books, Timothy, if you want. You can see other scrolls, Timothy, at the bookstore and decide which way you want to lead the church. He doesn't say that. He says how you ought to. It is necessary for you to conduct it this way, a biblical way, and in a way in which is godly and glorifying. I'm going to just get off topic here for a second. Notice Paul's view of the church and notice Paul's admonition to Timothy of the church. Conduct yourself in the household of God. It's where believers are supposed to be. They're supposed to be in the household of God because, number one, it's the church of the living God, not the church of these false gods in his day. And then he says the church is the pillar and support of the truth. So if someone were to say, were to, say to me, what do you think was the, is the pillar and the support of the truth? A knee-jerk initial reaction would have been the word. He says it's the church, but he says it's the church because we're going to find out in this letter. It's at the church is where the truth is taught. It's preached. It's doctrine. It's administrated. It guards against false teaching. It's the word. So the church gathering together, hearing the word of God, is the pillar and the support of truth. And Paul says, look, I'm writing this so you know how to conduct yourselves in all of these things. I mentioned there to guard against false teaching. There's an awful lot in 1 Timothy about false teaching. In fact, there's an awful lot in the New Testament about false teaching. Virtually every letter, almost every letter, in the New Testament contains some sort of admonition against false teaching, cropping in Crete, cropping in Ephesus, cropping in Corinth. And Paul is always about that. And so we're going to see that. And by the way, just as far as purposes go, that's, those verses aren't the only purpose verses. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And so this is another purpose. In fact, 
it's kind of a big purpose because three times, at least three times, there are major sections in 1 Timothy on false teaching. Is it just that, though? No. Next would be church doctrine because every time he mentions about the false teaching, he gives the correct teaching. But Paul doesn't just say, well, they're wrong. He explains why they're wrong, biblically, why they are wrong. And so you've already heard about the number of areas of doctrine that Paul taught about. Well, how about that one that was there that was read this morning, right after he says, the reason I'm writing to you is so that I'm coming to you and that you will know how to conduct the church. And then right away, Paul goes into this. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He, that's Christ, who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. It's almost as if Paul can't say anything without bringing in some sort of doctrine or teaching, and rightly so. By the way, this verse, verse 13, some think that it was the doctrinal statement of the early church. Some think that it was a hymn of, the, of an early church. So in other words, churches in the first century sang their doctrinal statement. And I'd like to put out the challenge to you that some of you will come up with lyrics, not lyrics, but music to the lyrics of our constitution and doctrinal statement. I'm just kidding. But you know what? Look how, look how sold out they were to know this, to learn this. And that goes when we sing hymns, they need to be biblical. When we sing praise songs, they need to be biblical. They need to edify. Well, that was another reason. And finally, a reason for him to write was encouragement of Timothy. Timothy needed some encouragement. Now, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he talks about being intimidated because of his youthfulness. Now, this is interesting because this is some 15 years after he came along in Paul's ministry, and he's still being called young. So we believe that Timothy was called either in his late teens or very early 20s in his ministry. Paul is still calling him young. But the point here is he's encouraging him. Let no one look down on your youthfulness. So what if you're younger? By the way, when he talks about the qualifications for elders, it's not how old they are. It's how spiritual they are. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself as an example of those who believe. Um, talks about his, the frailty of his health. He says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So he had some physical problems. And then, as I mentioned before, he struggled with timidity. Now, that is not specifically mentioned in 1 Timothy, but you know that it is in 2 Timothy. And I dare say it wasn't as if he was doing good in 1 Timothy, but by 2 Timothy, he, had, he was starting to be afraid. It says, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. And it very well could be by this time, Timothy wasn't so timid. And again, if whatever that means, intimidation because of his age or maybe in speech, maybe he's afraid to speak, that kind of thing, but it wasn't his courage. John Mark, I believe, left 
Paul's ministry because of fear of persecution. But Timothy did not from the very beginning to the very end. And so perhaps Paul is just reminding him of something that he talked to him about. He's encouraging him to, to continue in that. So those are the occasions and the things that we think why the letter was written. But that doesn't cover everything. I'd like to talk about those theological and practical matters. And that's what it is. So it's not a pastoral manual. It does talk about theological issues and it talks about practical matters. It even talks about some of the problems of how to deal with certain people, uh, how to deal with certain problems. It even brings in the idea of understanding church discipline. That is brought into 1 Timothy. So I'd like to work my way through them. And I, I have a number of them. I don't have all of them, but let me just read what they are. Again, false teachers. Since he spends three times, three sections on it, I just want to mention something a little more about it, false teachers. Second of all, what about the woman's role in the church? We're still asking that question. We're still trying to define that. What about qualifications for leadership? What about conduct in the church? Or here's one that you really don't know about. It's principles for dealing with people. I often say that being in the grocery business for all those years prepared me for the pastorate. Now, you don't have to be in the grocery business to be a pastor, but it sure helps. Anyway, let's go through them. First of all, let's look once again at the false teaching that's going on. He first picks it up in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. So let's turn there, and I know we're reading that again. And I'm thinking of this as the false doctrine at Ephesus. Wait a second. I thought the Ephesians had it all together. Not so. The false doctrine that was at Ephesus, and this is really a driving force why Paul sent Timothy to go there. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, and you probably picked it up. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. And he will go in to define what is strange doctrine. And he talks about people who are involved in myths and genealogies and insignificant things which have nothing to do with the Bible and doctrine. But this is what they build their doctrine on. Timothy, you go in there and bring some sense to them. And then in chapter 4, he talks about false teaching. He talks about the time frame and the source of false teaching. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 4.1. As to the time frame, it says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. This is what false teaching does. Pulls people away from the truth and from the faith. And by the way, we would be in those later times. The later times, I believe, would be between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. We're there. But where's the source of false teaching? It says that they pay attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Spiritual warfare. 
maybe Timothy needed to go and preach on the armor of God like Lou did, even after I preached on the armor of God. And maybe we'll keep on preaching on the armor of God until we get it. But he sends them and he tells them, look, these, are, these, these unbiblical things don't just happen by the imagination of man. The source of it is really Satan, demons, and they bring out these things. And he talks about, in the first case, of how strange many of these are. And he deals with this one here. And, and after he gives the false teaching, he gives the true doctrine. And finally, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, there's just a little section there on false teaching. I call this the motivation for false teachers. Well, if they're false teachers, they have false morals. They have false goals. They have false motives. In other words, they're not biblical. They're false. And we go to 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would. And he talks in verse 3 about they advocate different doctrine. Different than what? Different than Paul's doctrine. Different than Timothy's doctrine. Different than God's doctrine, Christ's doctrine, the doctrine contained in the scriptures. They are conceited. They understand nothing and they dispute about words. And then in verse 5, 1 Timothy 6, 5, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Their motivation is immoral. Their motivation is financial. Their motivation is self-serving. And even though we haven't started the study of 1 Timothy yet, we already know something about it, that there's, there's some, some false teaching and false teachers going on there at Ephesus. And so it wasn't as if Timothy, okay, Timothy, just go in there and you know, preach your, your, your sermon on Sunday and, and uh, you know, have coffee with some of the men. And th these are big, big issues. It reminds me of when years ago, many years ago, I became an elder at this church and truly, truly thought this is going to be great. I'm going to shake everybody's hands. I'm going to try to encourage them in the Lord. And within about two months, there was a church split. And all of a sudden, now we're dealing with people and trying to put them together. We're trying to get to the bottom of it. We're trying to keep this thing together. And then there were things that, hey, look, we're standing on these things regardless whether you agree or not. And if you don't agree with these things and you have to leave, then so be it. So much for just shaking hands. So... This is what's involved, and this is one of the matters and the major issues of, upon which Paul writes. Now, the next one is women's role in the church. And I just want to say it from the very beginning. I want to make it clear. This is not the reason why I wanted to teach 1 Timothy, okay? And we're not going to get into it so much now. I only want to be in trouble for so many weeks, okay? I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I am impressed with the godly attitude of the women in this church that understand biblical principles. But what, what I do want to mention about this is that, that, that Paul is going to write to Timothy not about the viewpoint of culture. Well, culture says this today. Paul does not give any principles based on culture. 
Rather, he goes back to the design of creation where Adam was created first. And this is why preachers, pastors ought to be men. And that's his argument, not culture. Well, things aren't the same. Well, no, they're never the same because culture is always changing. But creation and the divine design is always the same. And that goes for gender recognition. I'm sorry. He created us, created us male and female. And that is it. And then there's the qualification for leadership. When you study, especially the pastoral epistles, you find out this is extremely important. When Paul sent Titus, the other young pastor, to Crete, which the people of Crete are, were liars, Paul said, quoting a philosopher. The very first thing that Titus was supposed to do was the very first thing. And the very first thing in beginning a church is designating leaders, elders. Paul writes, the reason, for the reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. It's about that. And there are qualifications in Titus for elders, but there are also qualifications for elders in 1 Timothy. And as I've already said, it's not based upon age, either young or old. It doesn't matter. It's based upon spirituality. How spiritual are you? How well do you know the word? How well are you able to defend the word of God? How well are you, well are you able to live the life? And these are the qualifications that we will see when we go through this. So this is one of, this is church administration. Now just quickly, where does the pastor fall in this? Well, I believe the Bible teaches that the pastor is just one of the elders. And so when we have an elder meeting, my vote is just one vote among other elders. And by the way, we'll also talk about, well, why don't we have a congregational rule? I mean, that seems fair, right? Yes, it does seem fair. But the reason that there's the choice of leadership is because you get to, you get to decide who you think is spiritual, who you think is reputable, who you think would be a good elder to lead the church spiritually. And by the way, this is all biblical. So maybe on the one hand, we're, we're opening up Pandora's box with issues, but that's what Timothy was dealing with. Now we get to feel like it. Now you feel a little bit like with what Timothy felt like. And then we get to the conduct in the church. And I know I'm repeating myself, but this is one of the, one of the issues. Now the word for conduct is an interesting word, anastrepho, and it means to turn back or turn. And, and you're saying, well, what does that mean? Well, it means choice. Should I turn to the left? Should I turn to the right? What should be my conduct? And the answer is, it should be biblical conduct. It should be biblical principles. They're the right choices, making right choices. It's not as though 
anything goes in the church. It's okay. No, these are right choices. And it's not just the right choices, but then it's also dealing with people. He talks about widows. He talks about young men. He talks about older men, young women, older women, how to deal with them. He talks about the rich. All of these in principles for dealing with people. And these are the things that you aren't necessarily prepared for in the church. But I will say this, if there is any one piece of advice I have for a new pastor, it is your whole being must rely on the word of God for what is right and for the actions that you take. And you know what? It's because Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this letter to Timothy that we now know how to conduct the church. He talks about church discipline. He talks about Christian work ethic. He talks about responsibility of the family to provide. And so... In a sense, it's almost exciting to say, yeah, we're going we're gonna to deal with these things. We're going to go through these things. And we're not going to be in a hurry. I, I don't want to just skip over anything. We'll spend some time and maybe even a little extra time in these. And then finally, what you usually do or you try to do is if you're going to say, well, you know, if I could pick a key verse or key verses, what would they be? Well, I must say that many and most suggest that it was 1 Timothy 3.15, that's the key verse. That's the one where he says, and in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. And that's why he wrote it. And that's what part of this is about. So I will not disagree with that. But in studying this book, there is something interesting he tells Timothy, when he describes his work in Ephesus, in the church as fighting the good fight. In fact, he begins the epistle with that, and he concludes the epistle with that. And then at the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy, he says, I have fought the good fight. So I think there's an idea of I'm sending you to Ephesus to fight the good fight. Now, obviously, he doesn't mean literally fight. And he doesn't mean to certainly cause fights in the church, nor to cause fights outside the church, but to be able to defend. Fight stands more for the motivation. What I believe that it means is it's the vigorous commitment to truth in the church. That's what I think it means to fight the good fight, to preach the gospel, fighting the good fight, to guard against false teaching, fighting the good fight, to teach believers and build them up, fighting the good fight, to deal with church discipline when you don't want to, but you have to, fighting the good fight. How to be a faithful pastor or believer in ministry, in the church, and never give up.
just thinking of my father. When I was a young boy, my, my father used to like to watch boxing, and so I did too. And we often talked about such things, and you hear different cliches down through the years. By the way, boxing is called the sweet science. It's the sweet science because while you are dodging the punch of your opponent, you are getting ready now to hit him in the area that he had just opened up by punching at you, and they call it the sweet science. It is said, it's not the size of the man in the fight, but the size of the fight in the man. And so turn with me then in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Let's read it, because this is the power. It's one thing for me to tell you, but it's another thing for you to hear it in the word of God. And we'll explain some of the other things as we go through, like he's going to talk about the prophecies made concerning Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18 says this, This command I entrust to you, and that's what was written before about the false teachers and about true doctrine. So I'm commanding this and entrusting this to you. Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, and I think that's Timothy's call, that... Here's what you're supposed to do, Timothy. This is my description of why you're in Ephesus, that by them you fight the good fight. By that doctrine, you're fighting the good fight. While you're guarding against false teaching, you're fighting the good fight. To lead the church correctly, biblically, and in administration, that is fighting the good fight. To see people grow and train them in ministry, disciple them, you're fighting the good fight. Let's fight the good fight. That's what I think we're going to hear from the book of 1 Timothy, and that's the application for today. So whether it is the key verse, we'll just find out in heaven, <laughs> or one of the key verses, to me I thought it was so interesting because he says it here in the beginning of the epistle, and then he says at the very end, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, at the end of Paul's life, at the very last epistle, not only to Timothy, but to anybody, he says, Timothy, and this is, I'm sure, for encouragement to Timothy, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And so I have entitled my outline and this series as Fighting the Good Fight in the Church. Now what I'd like to do at this moment is I'd like to go over the outline. I, I am an outline freak. I am outline OCD. I admit it, okay? But... It's because there's a reason why. When you outline a passage or a book, all of a sudden now you have a bird's eye view and a grasp of what's going to be taught in this book. And I think that's so great. That's what context is all about, so that we don't take something out of context, but keep it in context when we interpret it. So I have the five major points, if you'd like to see all of them, if you like outlined, I, I have them put back there on that table along with 
the, uh, the New Testament. So you can get the full outline that I put in there. And, and already, when you look at this, you're going to say, well, you've talked about all of these things. Exactly. This is outlining what the book of Timothy talks about. So fighting the good fight in the church begins with the problem of false teachers. And there's quite a bit. All of chapter 1 is going to be dealing with that, so to speak. This is a major reason. That's how you fight the good fight. And especially with all the deconstructionism going on in the church today from supposed Christians, we have a fight. I, 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 think, I think there's more of a fight now than ever before. If you would have told me that a good portion of my ministry is going to be in trying to ground the church that was once grounded, and I don't mean local church. I would say, no, 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 no. That's, that's, we did that in the beginning of my ministry. Now we're moving on. We're moving on to more mature things. No, we're not. No, we're not. In fact, it's gotten worse. There was a time very when I first came to know the Lord, I had a passion for missions and really wanted to go to the mission field. The Lord did direct me and change all that. I don't want to go on the mission field anymore. I want you to go on the mission field. I don't want to go on the mission field anymore because my fight is here in the sod of America. I'm digging my feet in and I'm standing on the word of God and that's it. And I feel like more than ever now, I need to deal with the church and the ideas from the church. And it used to be, well, here's this crazy false doctrine coming out from these crazy people. And now it's these things are being said from within the church. Fighting the good fight in the church? Oh, you better believe it. The false teaching? You better believe it. The second point is what we've already discussed, proper conduct. Not just conduct, but proper conduct. And it's theological, it's practical, and I think it's also wise. There are some things that aren't written about how to deal with some situations, and so by prayer and a godly group of men as elders, you are deciding these things of the proper conduct in church and how to deal with people. And then three, I, I, I couldn't help it. I mean, I'm just doing the text, right? I'm an expositor. The third point is perspective on false teaching. So he not only talks about false teachers, but now he gives his perspective. I, w I could have said philosophy, but I, I think perspective is a lot better because Paul is more of a biblical theologian than to say a philosopher. His philosophy is biblical theology. And we're back in it again. He felt it necessary under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to write these things once again. And then... Point four is people and principles. And here's where he really goes into detail. And let me just read the detail. And if you, if you get the detailed outline, great. But chapter five begins with this, principles. Principles on older and younger men. Principles on older and younger women. Principles on older and younger widows. Principles on financial responsibility of family. 
principles on ruling elders, principles on church discipline, and principles on masters and slaves. And then finally, he is not done. This is a, an epistle of instruction, a lot of instruction. He is helping Timothy. I call this <laughs> parting instructions. I know, I know it's deep, it's deep, I know. Parting instructions. But again, he begins with instructions on false teachers. And then he's going to talk about their love of money and how we should not be tempted with the love of money. He's then going to talk about instructions for the rich, and then he's going to give a didactic benediction, which means it's a last piece of instruction in a benediction. One of the things that I also noticed about this, having outlined this, is that not only does he talk three times, three big sections on false teachings, but there's a number of times in which he gives charges to Timothy. He gives charges to Timothy. Timothy, you, you have to do this. He does it in chapter 1. He does it in chapter 4. He also does it in chapter 6. So he gives these personal charges to him. So we'll pick it up next week, and we'll begin with verse 1 and move through that. But as far as the big picture goes, I think what we do see, this is a pastoral epistle. The title is Timothy because that's Paul's spiritual child in the Lord who he brought to Christ. We see Timothy's background, and he is now one of my heroes, seeing what he has done in the ministry. We know that Paul wrote this book, and we know why Paul wrote the book for these various reasons. And let it never be said that 1 Timothy is not theological or that 1 Timothy is not practical. It is. The key verse that I will be using is to fight the good fight. So let me conclude with this. Make no mistake. We are in a battle. The battle revolves around the church. You don't have to always be in the church. When you're outside of the church, are you still a Christian? Yes, you're eternally secure. But there is something about the church that makes the church the pillar and support of the truth. And we need to gather together. You know, it was, that's one of the things that I have to say that I'm most sad of watching what happened has happened over the years that I've been in the ministry. I, I've said this before. When I first got in the ministry, you... You didn't want to be accused of legalism. You didn't want to be accused of a legalistic pastor and saying, you've got to be here every time the church doors open. Fair enough. Oh, my word, what happened now? Now we have to argue, you know, you could be in the church once in a while when the doors are open. That's what we have to say now. And we have to convince Christianity even, Christians, that it's important and necessary and more importantly, biblical. So the battle revolves around the church, and that's why 1 Timothy was written. The battle also revolves against false teaching. I, I, we, we have a glimpse of what it was like in the first century. It was brutal because they, they also could put people to death at that time. We haven't experienced that yet here in America. 
but we have experienced just the idea that if I'm a Christian and I want to know what to believe, I'll just ask my peers. If I'm a Christian and I want to know what to believe, I'll just Google it. Wow, it's a battle. We're also battling morality for the church. There are things that are accepted today by churches that years ago when someone was guilty of them, they were, they, they were ashamed. They were ashamed of it. Now there is no shame. Now you are shamed if you don't accept it. Oh yeah, it's a battle. Fighting the good fight in the church, for the church, for Christ, the head of the church. And we're also fighting not just morality in the church, but morality in character. Well, to me, we can do this. To me, we can do that. Sounds to me like you're serving the God to me. And then we're also struggling with one other battle. And that is the battle to be faithful to the end. To the very last round. You can have 11 rounds, and the 12th round can make the difference. Case in point, George Foreman, the oldest man to ever win the, the belt, number one champ. And it was bad. At the, at the beginning of the 12th round, the referee came over and held a white towel. Now, in case you don't know what that means is, you give it to the, the trainer. Trainer takes the white towel, throws it in, means my fighter's done. George is shaking his head, no way. Trainer's saying, no way. And he went out and knocked out the world champ. And he was the oldest man to ever become world champ. Never give up. To the very end, like the Apostle Paul, to where you could say, I have fought the good fight. I've stayed in the good fight. I believe we are where we are in Christianity because there are many who have not stayed in the fight. They either joined them or got out of it. And that's what we need to do. Well, with that, let's just go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for the admonition of this letter. There's a lot here, Lord, a lot for us to internalize, a lot for me as pastor to internalize, a lot for the elders, spiritual leaders to internalize, but a lot for every one of us, Lord, as believers to internalize. And so would you help us to do that, Lord, so that we might conduct church biblically and properly and most importantly, to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, because it's in his name we pray, amen.